0: Turn to first Peter, we are continuing a study of first Peter, and we are calling this uh, study weird and uh, that word uh, points to that which is supernatural of supernatural origin, uncanny, unlike this world and today we're we're looking at verses thirteen through sixteen and and thirteen through sixteen really falls. Uh, as a part of a larger section through verse 21, but there was no way uh, that I was going to cover all of that. And really you see four imperatives here from 13 to 21, four commands. We're going to look at the first two today. But, but understand, what, understand this, what we see today flows from our salvation. It is sourced in salvation it is res- it is a proper response to grace it is a proper response to god making a way for sinners to be adopted into his family brought back reconciled transferred from the kingdom domain of darkness into the kingdom of light if we separate what we see here from the gospel if we separate this from our Identity, it, it leads to self-righteousness, it, it leads to arrogance, it loses all of its meaning. What, what we see today is fueled by the gospel. It's fueled by an identity. Peter just spent 12 verses talking about the gospel, that, that God is blessed. To be blessed, to be praised, to be adored, that we are to be in awe of, of the gospel, that, that, though, that, that God has cre- created us and in, a, we have chosen sin over him. We've chosen to do what is right in our own eyes, over what is right in God's eyes. We've rebelled, we've ran. And yet, in His grace, He pursued us, and He has made a way for for us to be reconciled. And be in awe of that. Be in awe of the fact that if you're a believer today, that you can call yourself a child of God. And what we see is, is the response, beginning in verse 13, the response. I think about and, and you see this throughout throughout all the book, really most of the New Testament. The writers will tell what God has done, and then there will be a marked transition in the book where it is a response to what God has done. Ephesians four, therefore, do not live do not live any longer as the Gentiles live. In Galatians, you see it in verse four, in chapter four. In Romans 12, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual, literally your reasonable service of worship, in view of God's mercy. Eleven chapters he gives the gospel, what God has done. In the Greek, it would be the indicative. And then he transitions to the imperative, a response to that. So what? That's the answer. So what? What now? How do you and I, what Peter gets at here is, how do you and I live in light of of being the people of God? How do we relate to God? How do we relate to each other? How How do we relate to suffering? How do we relate to sin? How do we deal with it? And again, it's all built on God's grace of having adopted us into his family, of assuring us of an inheritance, uh, of the privileges, as we saw, that we stand in today, looking back at a completed work. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Completed historical work. It's a fact. Fulfillment of prophecy. And, and what he's saying is that our salvation, our Our new identity as the people of God drives, it drives what we see here. That we as the people of God have a a new Lord over our lives, we have a new Father, we have a new identity, and thus, we are to live in a different way. What what we're going to see in the rest of 1 Peter is a response to the grace of God. What he's going to say is grasp, grasp the weight, grasp the privilege, grasp the awesomeness of this new identity of of being a child of God, of being a part of the family of God. But but not only the awesomeness, grasp the responsibility that comes with that privilege. Grasp the responsibility that comes with that new identity and new family. Grasp the responsibility to reflect, to represent our Father, to be obedient to our Father. Grasp the weight, not only of God, but, but being a part of the people of God, by grace through faith in Christ. I, I would put forth, I would, arg- I would argue staunchly that the worth And the weight and the significance, not only of God, but of our salvation, of of bearing the name of God, of being the, the people of God, the weight and the significance and the privilege and the awesomeness of that, of being a child of God, I would argue that that has lost its weight and its worth and its glory in our culture. I would argue that that is is behind most of what we see, that the the problems that we see in the church, in our own lives, we do not properly grasp our identity as the people of God. We don't properly grasp what we have been called to. We don't grasp our identity. We don't grasp the, the responsibility that comes with that identity. We don't grasp grace well. I'm reading reading some works by an an author, and and listen to what he says, and it struck me, and I've been meditating on this for about three, four weeks now. Just prayerfully considering whether to share it, because it's very strong, but I I think it fits well with what we see today in 1 Peter. And listen to what this, this author says. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. God has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as to not be noticeable. He has lost his importance for human life. He goes on to say, "...those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television." Consider his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. Consider his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. And consider his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. He says the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique. It is not insufficient organization. It is not antiquated music. And those who want to squander the church's resources bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood that is spilling from its true wounds. He says this, The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests two insights inconsequentially upon the church. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. He's unimportant. He's weightless. He says His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And His Christ is too common. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. We're not in awe. We're not amazed. The the fact that of, of God and our identity as part of the people of God and the family of God has little to no impact on our daily lives. That's weightlessness. That's weightlessness. That that the tendency is for our lives to look more like the ways of the world than they do the character of our Father. It was true in Peter's day, and I would argue it's true in our our day today. And and again, I'm not excluding myself from this. And Peter is commanding his people against this. And as we open up these passages from 13 on in the book, I pray that God would reach into our hearts and our lives and reveal to us areas of our lives where God's weight, His His glory, His awesomeness. Areas of our lives where we've not allowed that to penetrate and inform, and direct, and guide. Areas that we're not amazed at His grace. Areas where we'll see next week where we don't fear Him in reverent awe and wonder at bearing His name. And that God would grant us the grace to repent of those and move toward Him in faith. Peter writes in verse 13, Therefore... Prepare your minds for action, or as Clay so elegantly stated, gird up your loins. Some of you have translations that say that. I, my Bible speaks in English. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be yourselves holy also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. E- each week I've tried to give you a word to walk out of here thinking about, whether it was identity or whether it was vindication or whether it was privilege or whether it was w- all the different words I've, I've given you. Last week it was privilege. Today it's consistent. The word Consistent. In response to God's great grace in adopting us into His people and family, believers must be intentional about living lives that are consistent with the character of God and who we are as the people of God. Be holy as I am holy. This is about representing our Father as children. And I think the text, as we dig into it, Peter will make that very clear. Do, do our, as we listen to the Word, as we sit submissively under the Word... Ask ourselves, do our lives line up? Are they consistent with the character of God? Are they consistent with what God has called us to be as the people of God? Am I living in a way that is consistent with who I've been declared to be in Christ? Everything we see is built upon the gospel. Please do not forget that. It's built upon grace. Church unity do we pursue unity in light of us being a family? Do we look across the pews here and realize that the people that over there are our family and the people over there are our family and the person on that row is our family? If we're, in, we're a people of God, we are, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. In all of that great price, do you understand the, the stench of Disunity. You understand the stench of, of, of hatred towards your brother, of a lack of unity? The stench of not willingly submitting ourselves to this word or or ignoring the word, of not loving one another, of not caring, maybe, of not even knowing. Peter, Peter gives us a couple of clear truths here in 13 through 16. Like I said, there'll be two more, Lord willing, next week in 17 through 21, if anyone comes back after this week. But uh, it's all about being consistent. And he says the first thing in verse 13, and I want to summarize He says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace of God to be brought to you at the revelation of, of Jesus Christ, in response to who we are as the children of God, Peter is saying we must fix our hope completely on the grace of God. And primarily that hope is future-oriented. Future-oriented. You go to Romans 8, we have been saved in hope. We have been saved in a hope that is not seen, for it is not hope. Hope is not seen, Paul says in 8.25 and following. It's not seen, it's a future grace. Look at verse 13, he says, therefore, there's the... And we say it many times, when you see therefore, understand what, is the, what it's there for. That is a hinge. Everything that he now writes hinges on what he has just said. Namely, an identity of the people of God, of that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore... Therefore, everything is identity driven, gospel driven, because we are the people of God. Fix your hope completely upon the grace of God that is to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at what God has done and then respond. It's a response. Our lives are lived as response. The, the word fix there, it, it means to look forward to something in confidence that is good and beneficiary. It is confidence in the future. It is certainty in future grace. It is assurance that something will happen in the future. God's past activity and His faithfulness assures us of future activity and faithfulness. That's why Paul writes Romans four fifteen four. I just I think about that verse off the top of my head, just that, that we have the hope through the Scriptures. Why do we have the Scriptures? That you and I would have hope. We read the Scriptures and we get hope. Time and time and time again, God was faithful. We looked at it this past Wednesday night, and we looked at Numbers 23, 19, He is not a God who who is like ordinary men. Has He said it and will He not do it? Has He not spoken it and will He not bring it to pass? Assurance. That the faithfulness of God never ceases. And past faithfulness, seeing the Scriptures, past faithfulness creates confidence in future faithfulness. And you and I, believer, we are to set our hope on the absolute certainty of God's promises in Christ in the future. And live that way now. I mean, our hope is fixed in a God who has already worked on our behalf to save us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And He's given us an identity and a security in that. Listen, we're not living in this, what, the reason why I said you can't separate it from the gospel is because we're not living this way to be accepted by God. We are to live this way because we have been accepted by God. And those are two totally different motives. We're not, we're not earning anything here. We're, we're, living, we're basking in glory and grace that's been given, not merited. Grace. Grace. We're not earning our, stand, our standing before God. We're living in light of Christ having earned that for us. And through faith, God credits Christ's work to our account, to our lives. And Peter is saying, you don't diversify your hope. Our our hope can't be in God plus stuff and money and people and relationships and circumstances and education. He says our hope is to rest solely on God and His faithfulness to do what He has promised to do. And the temptation is to allow to other things to compete for our hope. And when our hope rests in these functional gods and these idols and they don't deliver, that's why we're crushed. Because we've diversified our hope. And we've hoped in things that don't provide what they promise. Satan is a liar. He is a deceiver. Understand that. Peter will go on in 1 Peter 5, 8 to say he is a lion prowling around looking for somebody to devour. How does he devour? Through lies. Through false promises. Through offering you things that he doesn't follow through on. It's like my son loves to fish. Fish is really, to be a, he, he loves it. he's very good at it. But you know what Bradley's doing to those fish? He's lying to them. Grab this piece of bread, it'll be good. But there's a hook in it. I, I thought about that the other day. Is he's, dang, I mean, we could see the fish, Brad brings the worm right by it, thing hits it just like that. Tricked you. Satan is a liar. The things of this world, they're lies. They're deceit, they're deceit. And God and His grace are to be our complete hope. And it's a battle to keep it there. And, and Peter tells us what he says. That's the core of what he says. But he goes in verse 13 to tell us what it looks like to have your hope completely fixed on God, so that you and I can evaluate ourselves. I, I'm not making this up. I, this is not six ways. To, no, no. This is in the passage. And the first thing he says he, here is how you can evaluate yourself on whether your hope is really in God. The first thing he does is prepare your minds for action. In in chapter three, verse fifteen, he's going to be. He says, sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord in your lives. Always being ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you. Are you prepared for action? As Clay said, do you live in a way that your loins are girded? Are you ready to work at the drop of a hat? The the word here means intentional effort. It is living in such a way that you are always ready to serve God. Not not, Again, the easiest thing for us to do as a church would say, hey, in six months, clean off your schedule, we're going to go serve at a school, and then we're going to be done about it. That's one thing. It's a whole nother thing if you and I as believers live in such a way that we're always ready to serve. That's two totally different things. Anyone can plan six months out, let me clear my schedule and do that, and assuage my conscience and wipe it off my chest. I did my di- no versus living living ready. Somebody called me the other day and, and they were working on a, a lesson on stewardship and they said, Chris, what do you think about stewardship? And I and I said, I a long time ago I read something and it stuck with me. Stewardship is this. Stewardship is living in such a way that God can give you away. Living in such a way that God can give you away. Are you prepared at any moment? Proverbs 3 says, Do not hold that which is due another when it is, in, when it is your ability to do it. You know what he's saying? "At the drop of a hat, are you, my people, ready to serve? At the drop of a hat, are you ready to meet the need? In, in Israel, as Clay said, the, a man would wear a, a, a long sleeveless shirt that would be made out of linen, Or wool, and it would go down to his ankles, and it would be, and then he would cover that with something that we would, it would be similar to like a poncho. That poncho could be laid aside when it it came to to working and there would be a belt. But when it came time for active service, they would take the shirt and they would tuck it up in their belt so that their knees would not be hindered, so that they would be ready to work, that they could move quickly, that they would be prepared for action. Today it would be this, roll up your sleeves. When somebody says, roll up your sleeves, what do they mean? We're about to work. We're about to work. It, it would be like a, a, Bill would appreciate this, he's the track coach at Gaither. It, it's like a, do you live in such a way like you're a sprinter in the starting blocks? You know, that man or woman knows they're about to run a race. They're in the starting blocks. They're not just hanging around, chilling out. No, no, they're ready and they're, they're focused on one thing. What is it? The sound of the gun. No matter how long, they're ready. That's the picture here, And listen, this has always been, we talked about it last week, the continuity of the Old and New Testament. I thought about Exodus 12 and, and the Passover when, when God was about to get his people and, and exit them from Egypt. The, you, you remember the Passover. They, they took the lamb and they slaughtered it. And in faith, they spread the blood over the doorframe of the house. And then they, they ate the lamb. And listen, but listen to the instruction God gave them while they ate he says, you shall not leave any it until morning, but whatever is left of it, you shall burn with fire. Whatever you don't eat, burn it. Listen to what he says. You shall eat it in this manner. You shall eat when you eat it. Listen to this. With your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. You know what he says? As you eat the Lord's Supper, well, on that day was Passover, as you eat it, be prepared that at any moment we're out of here. We're out of here. Is that the way we live? Be ready at the drop of a hat. They they ate in expectation that at any moment it was ready for work. It was on. That they were ready. But he also says, he says, live in an, with an alertness. The, the word there he says, but he says sober It keeps sober in spirit. The word there, it means mental clarity. It means resolve to live in a certain way. The word sober, it means restraint. It means moderation that avoids excesses. You think about the word self-control. When someone lacks sobriety, they lack discipline. They lack self-control. They lack focus. Their judgment is impaired. Their reflexes are impaired. They're, They're not quick to move. Things get by them. Peter, they're, they're, not, they're not aware of their surroundings. They, they wake up the next day and are like, what happened? Peter is saying, do not live in a way that you're naive and unaware of your environment. Why? Because you have an enemy, Satan, that prowls around like a roaring lion, looking to devour, to steal, kill, and destroy. I mean, if I told you yesterday afternoon, I thought about it, yesterday um, we're out by the pool playing and, and I heard some commotion in the bushes. I look over. There's like a six foot snake in the bushes. I'm like, well, let's go try to catch it. Sarah, you wanna go catch it? She's like, Yeah, let's go catch it. So I don't really know why I asked that because I don't want to touch the thing. I get a garden rake and I'm trying to pin its head and I but but Karen's number one Karen's number one requirement was this Chris, just shut the door behind you, don't let that thing get on the pool. Don't let it get in the pool, because then the pool leads the house. And I'm thinking, man, if that thing got in our house, we'd have to just blow it up. <laughs> but, but listen, I'm poking around. I mean, it's just a black snake. It ain't going to hurt me. It ain't going to do anything. I'm poking around. I'm scared. That thing came out of the bushes. We were running and screaming. It was embarrassing. Embarrassing. I'm like, this is a black snake. I'm in front of my daughter. I think she was less scared. But there was an alertness. Why? Why? Because there was something I didn't like in the bushes. And I didn't know where it was. So the good news is we chased it into the neighbor's bushes. I'm done. I'm good. Good. Live over there for a little while, Joker. He came out and I did my neighborly duty. I said, hey, I think I saw a black snake in your bushes. You might want to look out. Be careful. How'd he get there? I don't know. I don't even know. I'll come look for him, but no. Be alert. Do do we live with an alertness that we have an adversary? Do do you live in an alertness of of being in a foreign land? Listen, the things of this world, false hopes that we've mentioned, trials. Listen, Satan wants us to get drunk on those things. Through those things, he wants to cloud our focus. He wants to cloud our judgment. He wants to distract us so that we're dull to the things of the Lord, so that we're dull to the things that really matter, so that we're consumed on ourselves... And when opportunities come to serve and opportunities come to meet needs, and, and opportunities like, well, I don't have time for that because I've consumed my life. I've packed it so full of self and so full of stuff that I don't have time or resources to do what the Lord has called me to do. And it takes me days to get ready. I need six months to plan to serve. I need three. That's not how God has called us to live as sojourners. To live alert. To live ready, to live with your sleeves rolled up. To not be dull to the things of the Lord, not to lose focus and that our inheritance is to come. It's like driving. You've been driving and where you see something, you start to pay attention to it. What happens naturally to your car when you start paying attention to something to the right or left? You veer that way. Go in the back and look on our van. There's a big old dent where I met a mailbox that way. He's saying, focus, focus completely on your identity, focus completely on the grace that is to come, live in light at all times, live in light of who we are in Christ, of our identity. In in Luke 12, Jesus said the same. He said, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so they, may be immediate, so they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them whether he comes in the second watch or the third or, or finds them so. Blessed are those slaves who are what? Alert and ready who have not become drunk on the things of the world and forgotten why they're here. And what Peter is telling us in verse 13 is that, Hoping fully in God did not result in mere wishful thinking. It didn't result in a lack of action. It didn't result in idleness. It didn't result in blending in with the things of the world. It was not just sitting back and waiting and doing nothing. It was not disengaging with the world and just being separate that way. It was being intentionally prepared at all times to serve. Intentionally prepared at all times. To be ready. To have your minds, to have Christ, as he says in 1 Peter three fifteen. I said, so set apart in your mind that you're always ready to give a defense. Not, hey, you know, there'll be questions that you're asked. I mean, listen, we, we tried to, we, I send that church homework out every week and Thursday night, you know, I'm all proud of myself. We're going to do our family devotions. It was like World War III. Bradley's over there nodding his head. Sarah's screaming at us, yelling at us. I don't understand that God is eternal. I don't either, Sarah. How could God be totally God and Jesus be totally God and totally man? I don't know. Read Philippians 2 and tell me, but I don't know. You know, I'm explaining it to her and she's screaming and yelling. I'm trying to prepare their minds. I'm trying to help them to be ready. I'm trying to remind myself to be ready. What Peter is saying is fixing our hope completely on God, it's this. It is orienting your entire life around who you are in Christ. Orienting your entire life around your identity in Christ. My question is, does that describe you today? Do you orient everything? Do you try? not I mean, again, do you try to orient everything around your identity in Christ? What, what might be distracting you today? What might have your attention more than the things of Christ today? What, what altar might you be worshiping on today rather than God alone? What, what might have you what things of the world might have you drunk too much of? Do, do you live in light of the weight and the glory of awesomeness, of calling? God your Father. Of bearing, believer, the identity. You're the people, I'm the people of God. Or maybe has His truth become too distant, His grace too ordinary, His judgment too benign, His gospel too easy, and His Christ way too common. The good news is today that God is calling us, if that's us, to repent, to focus on Christ, to begin today to orient our lives, to be ready. Our battle, you'll see it there, our battle to rightly live with God's people begins with a rightly centered hope. We will live, we will orient our lives around our hope. Please hear that. We will orient our lives around what is most precious to us and what we hope in. And God is calling us as a people to be, for that to be future grace. But not only not only hope completely on the grace that has come, in verses 14 through 16, he says in response to who we are as the children of God, we must be set apart by, from culture, by confront, conforming our lives, conforming our lives to the character of our Father. Listen, verse 14, do you see it there? As obedient children, everything about this, again, is going back to who you are as the people of God. As the child of God. Do not be as an obedient child of God. Do not be conformed to the former lusts that were yours in ignorance. But like the holy one who has called you, be yourselves holy in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. The, the word holy it means separated. There's a, there's a Hebrew word and there's a Greek word there. Both of them mean to cut away from. To cut away from. In Exodus 15, 11, God says, I, I am different. Because I am different from all the other gods, you are to be separated. The word means unique. It means one of a kind. There, it means this. There is none like this God. Different, separated. And because of that, the people of Israel, God's people, were to live differently. Listen, our new birth has changed our identity. Our new birth, our new identity comes with a decisively altered and new way of living that is totally connected to our being a child of God. Please hear that. Connect it to you are a child of God if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. If you have repented of your sins, called out to Jesus as Lord, you've been adopted into His family, you're a child. Everything here is is to be done as obedient children of God. Because of our identity. And we see that throughout throughout the scriptures. In Ephesians 4, for three chapters, he gives the gospel. Explains it. Explains the identity. And then he says, therefore, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, because of who you are, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In verse 17, he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance. You see the same language here, the former ignorance. God has revealed Himself to you. By grace, your eyes have been opened up to the reality of the gospel. You have, been, you have believed in Him for the forgiveness of your sins to be reconciled, that your sin debt forgiven, that, that your sins wiped white as snow. You've been, you've been adopted into His family. Live in light of that. Grasp the awesomeness of that, the amazement, the wonder of that. And and obedience as a believer is conforming our lives to the character of our Father. It's not just this set of rules. It's it's conforming our lives to the character of our Father. We pursue holiness not for our sake alone, but primarily because our Father is holy. Not just sometimes. Sometimes. It's not, we don't pursue holiness just in what we call religious. We don't just simply, listen, we don't just simply worship a different God. We live differently because of the awesomeness of that God. And the grace that He's offered. Be be in awe of grace. Be in awe of an identity that He's offered. And what marks us off is a pursuit of, Of holiness. Why? Because our Father is holy. We we don't live... Go to 1 Corinthians 6. Go to 1 Corinthians 10. We don't live based on what is permissible. We don't live based on what is lawful. We don't live based on what is is acceptable. We live based on what is holy. We, We live what is based on... The most glorious thing for our Father, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, 1 Corinthians 10.31, do it to the glory of God. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 8.13, if meat or any other thing causes my brother to stumble, I'll never, ever, 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 ever eat meat again. He was more concerned about what glorified his Father than what made his life easier. And and it's interesting here in, in, again, you see as obedient children. If you, Paul, I mean, Peter quotes in verse 16, Be holy as your father is holy. He quotes Leviticus 19.2. You can also look at Leviticus 11.44. You can look at uh, Leviticus 20. Three different times in Leviticus 20, he talks about be holy for your father is holy. But what you see here is an exact quote of Leviticus 19.2. The interesting thing is, in Leviticus 19.3, he immediately says, children, respect your father and your mother. Do you see the connection between the two passages? He connected holiness with living rightly as a child underneath a father and a mother. In First Peter, as obedient children, he connects holiness with doing what is most glorifying and obedient to your father. Everything here is connected to a child-father relationship between the believer and God. We do it as obedient children. The mark of a Christian, the mark of a follower, the mark of God's children is a pursuit of holiness. It's identity driven. Our lives as God's children are to be marked out by obedience in the pursuit of what is holy. And everything, everything is sourced in a new relationship that you and I have with God as Father. And in Peter's day, nothing, in the Old Testament, nothing characterized a father-child relationship more than obedience to the Father. That was the number one priority of a child, obedient to the, obedient to the Father. And what Peter is saying is you and I, today are no less the people of God than Israel was in the Old Testament or even in the days of the New Testament when Peter wrote, you and I are the people of God. Like Israel, God still demands that His people be set apart, that His people be different. Their clothing was different, their diet was different, their ethic was different, their relationships were different. Why? To the glory of their Father. All sourced in who they were as the people of God. Not self-righteousness not earning a favor, not meriting favor, because of who you are. And, and please, please, listen, do not miss this. It, in salvation, we are not simply set free from sin, though that's part of it. I mean, if you stop there, you miss the, the beauty In the fullness, in the gospel, we are set free from sin. But listen, we are adopted by a father. Listen, he didn't just go in and and set the prison doors open, just unlock them and say, have fun. He opened the prison doors and he said, come home with me. Come live as my son. Come live as my daughter. Come into my very presence for the rest of your life and live with me. I mean, if we stop at simply just the forgiveness of sin, you miss the beauty of adoption. You you miss the beauty and the wonder and the amazement of calling God your Father. And and the heart of the gospel is God choosing a people and and creating a people that, that is for His pleasure, that represents Him. The prize is God. We'll see that in chapter 3, verse 18. He, we, we're saved to God. He's the prize. A relationship. And therefore, we're to be set apart. And, and you and I, how we... He's teaching us, Peter's teaching us that how we conduct our lives in this world shows whom we're dedicated and belong. And it also shows where our hope lies. We're to be characterized by obedience... To the Father, and that's holiness. And listen, that's weird. That is weird. Holiness? That's weird. To the world, it's weird. And again, what what determines our behavior is not what is permissible. It's not what is available. It's not what it's, it's what is holy. It's what represents our Father. God has specifically, specially revealed Himself in Christ. And the gospel is a call. It is a call to submit to Christ in concrete obedience as a son would do his father. And it's always been the case. It's obedience. And and it's a call to follow Christ. In Christ, we have a new knowledge of God. You see that in John 1. The middle school boys for that last week and this week, we're looking at that in John 1, that Jesus Christ is the representation of the Father. And in Christianity, we have a change of kingdoms, a change of rulers, a change of ethic. Everything is different. Total new identity. And it is a response to grace. Even in in Titus 2, I thought about this verse this week. In Titus 2, verse 11... For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. Again, what instructs us? God's grace. Instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. What teaches us that grace? It's God's grace. It's God's grace. And in Christ, you and I, by grace, have been declared to be holy. And you know what he says? Live holy. In response to that. And I would ask you, again, is your life consistent with your identity in Christ? Would your life be characterized by a pursuit, an intentional pursuit of holiness? Would you say day by day that you are becoming more like Christ or more like the world? What, what does your conduct tell the world about where your true, high, your true hope may lie? If we, asked you, if we asked our friends, what would they say is weird about us? Anything weird about us? Anything weird? Weird. I pray that our lives would be marked out by obedience as children of God. That we would live lives where we are always ready for action. We're in the starting gate, we're in the starting blocks, we're down in our stance, our sleeves are rolled up, our loins are girded. We're ready. We're ready to meet the need. We're ready to serve, we're ready to glorify our Father at any moment that we would not be so drunk on the things of this world that we're just we miss opportunities that we're not aware of opportunities around us. And if you're here today and you're not sure if you're a believer or you know you're not a believer, I would pray I pray that God by his grace would open your eyes to the salvation that comes alone through Jesus Christ. That in, there is salvation in none other That every single one of us are going to stand before a holy God one day and give an account for our lives. And it's, Christ took my judgment, that's salvation, or you can take your own judgment, and that's condemnation. God in His great grace has made a way for us to avoid the wrath of God that is to come, that is to do our sins. And what He's called us... if. If grace has been poured out on our lives, he says, live that way.